Hello and welcome to Series 2 of Let Me Introduce You, the food business podcast where I get to introduce you to the most amazing producers, entrepreneurs and consultants that work with me to build stronger, healthier, better versions of their food businesses. I've been building teams to work with food businesses for more than 25 years and now I'm going to take you behind the scenes in my business to meet some of the amazing people I work with. In this episode, I'm delighted to be able to introduce you to Juliette Kello, a registered dietitian who I met more than 20 years ago when I was food styling for magazines and she was associate editor at Slimming Magazine. She talks about how she chose to be a dietitian, about work placement that shaped her career, great jobs in hospital with the Dairy Council, in magazines, and then 20 years freelancing for a mix of PR agencies, food companies and magazines and and in talking in the media. And she talks about her recent work behind the scenes with Tom Kerridge and Marcus Rashford on their full-time meals campaign to bring an end to child food poverty. It's a really good chat and I hope that you enjoy it as much as she and I did. Hi, Juliet. Thank you very much for agreeing to join me this morning and have a chat with me about your work. When you and I first met, you were at Slimming Magazine as an associate editor, and then you went on to Top Sante. I used to do the food styling for some meals for you, which were good and better choices. So standard meals and then better choices, better ways of doing them. We always used to laugh because the photographer that we worked on that with used to eat. We would shoot a couple of months at a time. He would eat them all in that one day and say that he thought it was perfectly good that he could do the healthy option. (laughs) That always always makes me smile when I see features like that. But um, so can you Tell me how you describe what you do to other people, because obviously your work is very diverse. Yeah, sure. Hi, Jane. Um, Thanks ever so much for giving me this opportunity. Goodness, we've got a long history, haven't we? We've gone back years and years and years. It's a long time since I was at Slimming Magazine. Yeah, so what do I do? Well, I mean, I suppose my first thing that I usually tell people is that I'm a qualified registered dietitian. So that was my original training. So I went through the formal training to become a dietitian, got my registration. Um, I did actually start out working in hospitals. So I was in um, Guy's and Lewisham Hospital, as it then was for about 18 months, moved into the food industry where I started working at the Dairy Council. And lots of that was really writing. I kind of knew when I was doing my degree that I should have perhaps considered journalism. That was one of the things. It was like, oh, should I have done dietetics? Maybe I should have done journalism. And of course, now I have the best of both worlds, really. Um, I didn't realize that back at the time. So coming back to your question about where, what I describe myself, I'm a bit of a a jack of all trades, I suppose. So yes, I'm a dietitian, but that really is a great umbrella for so many different activities. So one day I might be doing consultancy work for a food company. Another day I might be writing a feature for the Mirror or Closer magazine or Prima. Another day I might be doing some media and PR work with a food brand. So that could be doing radio interviews. It could be writing content for websites. It could be doing content for social. So it really depends, I suppose, what I'm working on at a specific time. I could be authoring. I could be doing consultancy. I could actually be doing the PR and media work. So, yeah, lots and lots of opportunities. And the overriding factor is that I'm a qualified dietitian and slash nutritionist, which really holds together all of the different strands of work that I do. That's the common thread. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly that. That's brilliant. How do you think other people, like what do your family say you do? Do you think they understand exactly what all you get up to? (laughs) Well, I remember my, my son's 12 now, but when he was little, he used to, if you asked him that question, it was just, she tells us what to eat. Um, in a typical True. kind of like, you know, four or five year old mummy tells yeah. us what to eat. Tea, oh bless. My, my husband will put together a dinner and just go, see, anyone can do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a, com- a common link in the food industry, I'm afraid. I, yeah, all, exactly. All treated like that. Yeah. Anyone can do this. Yeah. And I think, you know, my friends, I've been doing it for such a long time now. 
they I, I tend not to t- talk about work that no. much it's one of those things I think it's most people like most people I think the the thing with food is as you will know we are surrounded by it 24 7 and everyone has an interest in it everyone's got an opinion on it everyone's an expert in it of course everyone's an expert in food to some extent because they all eat so yes. you know I mean I, I keep quiet I hear a lot of nonsense being spoken in all aspects of life whether it's standing in a supermarket queue whether it's yes. some of my friends or colleagues whether it's written in the press and I've got to the point now certainly with friends and family where I just keep quiet because there's just no point going into a a big debate sometimes I might have a bit of a rant but it's not that often to be fair it's uh (laughs) we talk about food and what we like to eat and enjoy eating it rather than kind of dissecting it into its nutritional components and value and I think that's very real and and very sensible too isn't it and it is I mean everything is about balance you know and we can all I I get really hung up on people saying oh I don't do carbs or I don't do this or I'm totally sugar-free and all these things because I think you know everything in moderation is is a good way and also you need a really varied diet and different times of year and different times in your life cycle and things we all need different things so not being hung up about it is a much more useful thing yeah absolutely and I think you know we all have various hang-ups don't we and I think you know my message really to everyone is you don't need to give up anything you know a healthy balanced diet can include all sorts of foods it's really about as you say getting that balance right making sure that you've got the basics right with plenty of fruit and veg. I mean, I'm very much, certainly with most of the work that I do, I'm very much about promoting what you should be eating rather than what you shouldn't be eating. It's a far more positive message. Um, And I know, you know, I have a lot of friends. I had an email just recently from someone who was asking me for information about allergies. Um, This was a friend um, who wanted information about allergies. I've got other friends who are always, oh, can you help me lose weight? You know, it's just standard nature, Mm. isn't it? And I just tend to direct them to kind of, you know, I quite often direct them to sort of like reliable sources of information on, yeah. on the internet, whether it's the NHS website, for example, where the information is is good, um, or the yep. British Dietetic Association as well, because they've got some really great fact sheets on things like allergies, for example, and weight loss. So those sorts of things can be really useful tools that I do use with my friends. It's, it's kind of what I would tell um, clients if I saw them and including features, but it's just as good for your friends and your your colleagues. When you chose to do a dietetics degree, what what was behind it? When did you think you were interested in in food? Or I mean, I know you said you wondered if you should have done journalism or food. Mm. When did you see that thread coming? Was that while you were at school? Had you always known you had an interest in it? Or... Yes, right from early ages at school, actually. My favourite subject at school, without question, was home economics absolutely loved it it was my only a at uh, o level obviously that shows how old i am because it's all been gcses for many many years but yeah it was my only grade okay. a i was educated in scotland <laughs> so it's a totally different system anyway so i never really understand it but. yeah it's, it was really interesting actually how i ended up doing it because when i went to pick my a levels the three A-levels that I wanted to do were home economics, biology and English. Now, of course, those are the perfect three subjects for doing what I'm actually doing now. Yep. But of course, in we're talking sort of like the early 80s here, there were very strict rules about what you could mix and what you couldn't. So first of all, I got told you can't do home economics, you're too academic, you need to choose something slightly more academic. So that went off the list. And I think in its place, I just remember everything being in these set boxes and you had to choose from the box. And so I chose, I think, against my lesser judgment, maths, which wasn't a particularly strong subject. So we now were down to maths, biology and English. Oh, you can't do English with two sciences. You'll have to lose English. So I ended up doing chemistry, which was actually one of my weaker subjects. So I went on to do sciences as my A-levels. Now, of course, that was actually certainly chemistry and biology. They were the right two for dietetics. I didn't have that in mind at the time. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Did my A-levels and originally signed up to do degrees in biology. And then I think I had a bit of a kind of confidence crisis thinking, I'm not really that interested in a lot of the plant stuff. It's the human body. I should have done human biology. 
my father was diabetic so there was always this kind of like content he was very strict with it um type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. so there was always this kind of element of diet going on in the household I don't know I don't even really know what the light bulb moment was I just suddenly thought you know what I want to do dietetics and so I I had one space left on my university form I went through I think I almost went through clearing because I made the decision very very late ended up going to Leeds Poly as it was then yeah and that was really the start and then as I say I got into I think by the my first year I got very interested in media and the impact it was having on women's weight in particular and and Mm. body image and so from that, when we came to do our year out, I signed myself up. We had this three month, it was called a food, it was called an industry placement. And basically you could mm-hmm. do whatever you wanted. There were all sorts of different opportunities. And I wrote to hundreds of magazines. It was in the days when you actually put mm-hmm. pen to paper rather than sent off an email. Yeah. Wrote to hundreds of magazines and I ended up going to Woman's Own for three months working in the cookery department there and that was really when these magazines all had big cookery yeah exactly yeah really oh, do you yeah. remember those days there was an entire yeah. team with four or five people in a huge kitchen and uh, yeah so I went and, and worked there and I just loved it it was kind of you know my three-month placement I'd done a hospital placement I'd worked in hospital catering and this was really what I thought this is what I absolutely love so I came back finished my degree got my job at Guy's and while I was at Guy's I did a writing course it was a night school course it was called writing for the media it was very much more focused on kind of newspaper reporting but it was you know sufficient once at the dairy council it became far more of a writing role there writing for health professionals so I was doing things for health visitors practice nurses GPs teachers big teaching packs generally Mm. and then from there, the natural, I remember, I can remember seeing the job at Slimming Magazine. It was just, uh, I was, I used to look at Monday's Guardian jobs, the mm. media section every single week without fail. And I literally opened it up and it was like my dream job. It was associate editor, Slimming Magazine. We want someone who's can write, who's qualified in nutrition. So I went for the job, got it. I ended up being there for five years in the end. So after about a year, I was made deputy editor. After six months, I was editor. So I was editor there for three and a half years and then went on to be editor of Top Sante. So it's kind of interesting how kind of I started off thinking in my degree, I'd like to do media. And I ended up actually doing that. It's brilliant. With actually no formal training. I felt a complete fraud. I had imposter syndrome for quite a long time because I had no qualifications in journalism or English. It was all science and nutrition. And and a big interest in your subject, you know, which is hugely yeah. important. It is. It's really important. It also really shows you the importance of those internships or, you know, work placements and things. Because if you get a good one, it can be really inspiring. And if you get a bad one, it could have completely put you off what, what you had, you know, what, what it actually inspired you to go and do more of. So it does, it does show you, doesn't it? And it's one of the lovely things is now with all the social media, I'm back in touch with the cookery writer who was there at the time who really I was there as a very young 19, 20 year old and she was my inspiration. And I messaged them when I found her on Insta, I said, I think you're the person that I actually worked with when I kind of came as a student. And uh, it was just lovely to make contact with her and just saying you were so you inspired me. I've ended up pretty much doing what I'm doing because of you and the other girls that worked at the team or ladies that worked at the team there. And it's lovely, isn't it, to be able to do that and have that opportunity yeah. to tell them? Because I, I it's funny, but from doing the podcast, often when I ask people and you've kind of anticipated that by telling me about this woman but you know if we ask people who did you learn from or you know who inspired you and that kind of thing very often it's from jobs very early in your career or sometimes even before you're qualified the things that you did in your summer holidays where you were observing how people did things and you thought they get people on board they really don't get people on board and that helps you form your opinion but you know most often people are inspired much more like by people like that than they are by you know global CEOs who are in the media or you know and 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 it's been lovely 
to hear that. And it has made me very aware of the importance if you have anybody come into your business, even just, you know, to do a piece or get some experience or anything to make sure you give them as much as you can so that it will hopefully help them too. So it's an interesting one, definitely. Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, those early experiences, I remember the editor at Slimming Magazine, I had a, a review with her and we were talking about writing. Bearing again, I, I wasn't a trained writer, a trained person in English. And I just remember her sort of saying, you know, giving me sort of top tips on how to tighten up your writing. I've always uh, worked on the theory why use one word when you can use 100, which comes to, which is a bit of an issue when it's kind of writing copy. But, 200 words of copy. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but she, I can re- always remember her saying to me, sitting, and she said, try and pick up that pen. And I picked it up, and she goes, you don't need to use the word try. It's something which is achievable and you can do. You can pick up that pen, so just make statements. You know, that's a way to tighten up your copy. And it was just tips like that that she gave me, which were really invaluable, I suppose, and really yep. did help to hone my writing at that time. And also, I think the other thing about the having the opportunity there, you know, when I started at Slimming Magazine, I had so much opportunity to do media and PR work and building up those contacts with PR agencies, doing lots of media activities, radio, I used to do quite a bit of TV back then, usually mm. chat show type things, which needed some nutrition involvement. And just those opportunities that came, you know, that I never really thought I suppose I would have got. I don't necessarily think I would have got those unless I'd been working at at the magazine. At a magazine. And also in those days, as we've said, magazine staff was a a big thing. Mm. You know, there were a lot of people on staff, which then meant that you got you had more people to learn from, too, because now so much of it, very small staff, so much freelance and things. It's very difficult for people to get those networks that we got. Yeah, and I I think the other thing I remember, uh, as you say, that big team and how you all support each other. I mean, it is so, so important. I can remember again with the day that I found out I was taking over as editor of Slimming, and I'd only been there for six months as deputy. So I'd been on the title for 18 months, Mm -hmm. but only six months as deputy. And I hadn't really had to deputize during that time. So I had really no idea and I can remember the chief sub that morning throwing a proof at me going can you check this and me looking at it in horror going I have no idea what I'm checking it for so I can remember taking the junior sub off who I was quite good friends to the kitchen and just saying what do I actually check this for and she just said just read through make sure it makes sense there's no spelling mistakes at the pictures that you you know it should have already been checked you're just having a final read you have the final say and uh, it wasn't too long before I ca- became known as the editor with the red pen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> turned out I was actually a pretty good kind of, I was pretty good at proofreading. So, <laughs> so, That's brilliant, isn't it? Which I didn't, even, I didn't even know, but I learned that on the lesson. And that was, again, part of having that supportive team and network who you can actually ask questions from. And I think that's the other thing. When you're the boss, you don't know everything. And I think no. this is a really important thing, which we, we often think if you're the boss of some, or in charge, you should know everything. But actually, you can. Or you've got to look like you know everything, yeah. which is not the case and either. And you can learn so much from the people who are, you're working with to help enhance, I guess, your ability and also your productivity. Yeah. No, that does, that all makes sense. I know it's interesting, isn't it? And then, so now, obviously, a number of years um, working independently, not attached to magazine. And again, I think there is a huge advantage to that because you're doing not just one sort of thing, because you can't help it. If you're only working on PR stuff, you become very focused just on that. And you maybe miss some of the other stuff that's going on. Whereas by going into different businesses and seeing what's happening in them and different magazines and all the different things that you're exposed to, you're actually constantly updating your knowledge, your connections. I mean, do you find that in the way that you work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly in in the food industry, I guess it's like any industry, but 
people move around a lot within a, a yeah. relatively small circle. So PR is a classic example. You know, people move very quickly into different agencies. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the crucial thing is to build good relationships with people because as they move around, I mean, I've just had someone recently who's come back in contact. I worked with them about six or seven years ago and they're like, instantly I thought of you for this this activity. You never know, do you? No. And so I think if you're building good relationships across the board, and people also in this industry do switch. So you might have somebody who's working on a magazine who then ends up going to a newspaper, who then ends up going into doing copywriting in an agency, yes. so in a PR agency. So you do have this kind of mix of, of people moving around. So I suppose if you can build good relationships right from the start, it broadens your horizons as your career develops and I think you're right going back to that variety having a good variety in the activities that you do really can help to keep you I guess sane and make life far or make work far more enjoyable I think that's the thing because you're you, if you do get stuck on a project or some work which you're not particularly enjoying you know that there's an infinite time on this and you'll be moving on to something else which is perhaps more um, enjoyable or something which you will be able to sort of like crack on with more easily whatever the problem is so you can also as somebody who works for yourself to a certain degree you can pick what you do or don't get involved in so if there's something that absolutely wrangles with you that you don't think is right you're not in a position where you have to do that thing which is always hugely helpful too yeah, I think so. And I mean, a lot of that plays into your beliefs and your ethics as well. So I mean, I'm quite strict mm. as to what I will work on and what I won't work on when it comes to brand work. I couldn't work with a brand if I didn't really believe in the product. I mean, my golden rule is would I buy it? Would I eat it myself? Would I feed it to my family? Would I recommend it to my mother or my best friend? If it doesn't tick those boxes, then probably I wouldn't work with it. them. And similarly, no. the same with um, products, if you know, if they're making claims which I know are outside of legislation on nutrition and health claims, for example, you know, if you've got a client who comes to you saying this is what we want to say and you turn around and say, actually, that's not legal and they say, we don't care, we want to say it anyway, they're not for me. If they come to me and say, we want to say this and I say, well, actually, that's not legal and they say, okay, how can we work with this and what can we say? then yep. it's a, a good indication that we would probably be a good mix. Yep. So I think, you know, I do pick and choose. I think that's quite important to maintain your integrity, whatever area you're working in, in, in the food industry. Well, in any industry, isn't it? It's not just food, in any career. And I always know myself when something isn't making me comfortable. Yeah. And even right at the beginning of something, and you think... Do I say something or not? And then I think I won't sleep if I don't say yeah. it. So I have to do it. And I think for me, integrity is probably the biggest thing. And, and for you, I would think it's probably exactly the same too. Because if you are associated, if somebody thinks that you would do something regardless of whether you thought it was right or not, then you've really lost exactly what people are employing you for. You know, which is that they need you to tell them what what is the right way to do things and what you can do and what you can't do. And so if you would be led by people that you don't believe have that integrity in things, you know, you would very quickly lose lose your own reputation well you'd lose credibility wouldn't you I yeah. mean I think that's the thing you have to I mean as a, as a dietitian I have a professional code of conduct I need to stick by anyway yes but I think on top of that it's important to layer your own values whatever your professional conduct mm. is you need to layer your own professional values I think there's a lot of time that your gut instinct will play quite a big part so I, I do tend to trust my inner gut instinct. Yeah. Um, I think a very good marker as to whether this is a good mix for you, and I use this quite often, and I've actually got quite good at it now in the internal signs. 
telling me yep. that this isn't a good thing. So, for example, if I ever have a query about something, I've got a couple of a handful of colleagues who I can phone up and say, would you do this work? Now, the very fact that I'm phoning them up in the first instance to ask them, that means I'm not comfortable with it. And so now I almost don't need to make that phone call because if I think... Because if you're thinking like that. Yeah, yeah. and I think that comes with experience. You know, I know... I can remember a very early job when I first went freelance 20 years ago and remember thinking, oh, I don't really feel that I want to do this. But it was my first. It's difficult when you first start out because you want to take yes. every opportunity, don't you? Yeah, and, um, absolutely. You know, it's kind of like you've got that sort of like the rose tinted spectacles on. This is all going to be amazing and everything's going to be great. And then you get a, a job and you think, oh, I really don't feel comfortable doing this and I remember getting kind of like to the point where we almost signed contracts and say and then saying do you know what I'm really sorry I can't actually work with this I probably never got any work with that person ever again but I'm so glad that I didn't do that job but, in but the it would end. have made you ill if you'd done it absolutely and it would have yeah. had repercussions actually with what happened later on so I'm really glad that I backed out of that one um, so yes yeah, so I think if you're just starting out do listen to your gut instinct think if you're having to ask people do you know would you do this it's there's some alarm bell ringing that it's perhaps not quite right for you if you're having to question it's brilliant to have those kind of people too isn't it I there's a another woman in the industry who on paper would look like a direct competitor of mine but she and I got on really well we're actually going out for dinner this week we quite often she'll find me and say I need somebody who can do this do you have somebody that does it if I do I'll share that person with her but I also know she'll respect that connection you know and I would often say to her have you ever come across this person I've been asked to do this thing and it's but as you say if you need to ask you've already almost answered the question for yourself because they're not there's something making you uncomfortable you raise a really good point actually about somebody who you think might be a competitor so there are lots of people in nutrition when I first started out doing the PR and the media work there were a handful of us now there are loads of us there are lots of people now working in industry working with brands um, and it's absolutely brilliant and I think it's so important that rather than seeing these people as competitors they got the job I didn't that you actually collaborate because actually yes. it's the same it's the same we're all parts we're all pieces of a much bigger jigsaw puzzle rather than trying to sort of like be the whole puzzle you know we I think we're stronger as a profession and we have a much greater impact and actually as an individual working on a freelance basis you have much greater enjoyment from work and feel far less isolated if you can contact all of those people or a handful of those people who yeah. who do what you do it doesn't mean that you're and gonna... who you value their their input as well yeah. yeah so I think don't look at your colleagues who are doing the same as you as as kind of threats look at them really as allies mm. in that they can really help you you can share jobs if something's not right for you at a particular time because you've got another project on, it's something that you can come forward. And I think it's so important when you're freelance that you do have a network of people that you can contact to talk to, to bounce ideas off if you're not sure of something. My work really is building teams that can help people sort things. So understanding what somebody's problem is, understanding who they need, pulling those people together. Yeah. And then and they're getting stuff done. And and often I would know from that group of people which of them would be the you know the right people for and also personality wise. Yeah. Some people will get on with a client, some people will not get on with that client because they are they've got very different ways of working and things. And for me, often I like to offer a client two or three people so that they can choose which of yeah. them they think is right for them as well because so much of it is that chemistry in a team as well so yeah absolutely the chemistry important. is important isn't it yeah and and I think you know the big thing for all of us at the age that we all are now is how long we've been doing things so how many contacts we have which is not something that you can speed your way to because you may be connected to somebody on LinkedIn but they're not gonna help you recommend something to you unless they really know you because you're going to be judged on what that other person does too and so it is it's relationships built over time it's about them 
knowing about your integrity, it's about you trusting them and them you, you keeping in touch with them. All of those things build that network and there is no shortcut to that. And that's, I mean, people say to me often, because I think now there is a thing about people wanting to work with young people and thinking that that's where everything new is coming from. And and very often customers will say to me, how did you know that? And I say, because I'm older. Do you know, because it is. And yeah. I'm not... I, I'm not making any apologies for it. You know, I've worked for 35 years to know all the people that I know now. And there is no shortcut to it. So thank goodness I'm the age I am because it helps them get those shortcuts. Yeah. And I think it gives you a good understanding of, of a broad spectrum of society and community and, um, and population yeah. as well. So, I mean, one of the things I know that there's, for example, huge focus on social media and online content but there's still a very significant proportion of of the population in the older age groups in the 50 plus who are are still using paper media so there is still this opportunity um well it's important to have both I think that's the key thing isn't Mm. it it's getting that kind of like being able to 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 do both but I think putting all your eggs in one basket and only doing social for example is missing out on a massive proportion of the population who are still enjoying looking at magazines, for example. They're still enjoying listening to the radio. They're still enjoying their newspapers. They might be getting their news online, but they're still looking at new. You know, they're still reading the news. Yes. It's not all quick, snappy sound bites. Which no, um, I think, and, and so it gives you longer too to go into depth with things. So it's a very yeah. different way of communicating, which is very, which is far preferable to me who writes like likes to write long nice lengthy features <laughs> I, to be fair I like both actually I, I like hmm. the short sharp sound bites but I, I think it's I love this. when I'm setting up Instagram posts and things or Twitter and things to look at how you can get the key point across in just that number of words is fascinating and makes you much better at using words in a way than if you can use as many as you need you know and and it is very different isn't it but I'm a, I must admit when I've got one message to put on even just on several different lots of social media I love that playing around with it to make sure you get the key points in and how you can cut something to something quite short and it will still be effective in that space but how in another space, LinkedIn or somewhere else, people want much more detail. So you have to to give that much more detail. It is. It's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? And I think the the way I quite often look at it is, you know, it for for Twitter or for Insta, it tends to be that kind of like this is my headline of my cell or stand first, depending mm-hmm. on whether you're working in papers or magazines. Yep. That's the content that you're getting across there. What would I put in a cell if I was going to sell this big feature? that's really the key point that's going into your Insta post, for example. And then you've got your much longer feature, which will be suited for your, you know, your magazine read. So Yes. No, I think that's very good. You've done a lot and you've taken on all these additional things like becoming an editor when that wasn't what you set out initially to train in. People often say that if you you have to step out of your comfort zone to be successful. So if you're only doing what you feel safe doing, you're not growing is really what they're trying to say. Can you think of something now that when you look back, you're amazed you did it? The, the first thing was moving into the world of magazines. That was a massive mm-hmm. for me. The next thing was then becoming an editor with no experience the next thing from being the editor of Slimming was going to be editor of Top Sante because this was suddenly really out of my comfort zone in, in that I was no longer dealing with nutrition specifically yeah. and food. I was dealing with health and beauty. Now, nutrition is obviously an element of that, but we didn't have 80 editorial pages of nutrition. We had 80 editorial pages of which of health and beauty, of which maybe five or six were nutrition. So that yeah. was a big big kind of like move away um and you know suddenly I'm I think it was at that point when I suddenly thought oh my goodness I'm actually editor of a of a woman's magazine now as opposed to kind of in my comfort zone of food and nutrition in that slot yeah Yeah. and then I suppose after that the next kind of big thing was going freelance so I mean I've been Mm -hmm. freelancing for nearly 
20 years now. I think it was 2003 that I became freelance. And I mean, yeah, it was a massive, massive step. And I, it is. I didn't. But one that you'd find very hard to go back the way from too because yeah. of the freedoms that gives you. Yeah, I don't think, um, I didn't really have a proper plan in place either. I mean, I look back now and I think I just fluked it really. I, I had a lot of contacts. I had, I mean, part of the reason I decided to go freelance was because people were contacting me saying, would you be prepared to do this? And I couldn't because I had a full-time job. And so I had a few jobs that were kind of, you know, set me off. But I mean, I didn't even have a computer at home back then. So I, I feel I had an ancient computer. Yeah. I can remember. It's so funny. We found it in the loft just recently. It, or my brother-in-law's loft, actually, not even ours. We found I bought when I left an old iMac bubble yep desktop do you remember they were huge yes I do enormous they're so heavy they were a proper like a bubble and Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we must have given it to my when I bought my uh, upgraded to a nice slimline screen I think I must have given it to my brother-in-law who's now having a loft conversion done so everything came out of the loft and I was like oh my goodness I haven't seen this for nearly 20 years and um, but yeah, I, I kind of fluked my way into freelancing. I had no idea about accounts, about tax, about running your own business, about how the money worked. And oh, so, but you knew the people you had to ask about it. So yeah, it was, I think it, I think if we all thought about everything, none of us would do anything. But it is. It's that taking that leap, isn't it? And I know a it lot is. of people say I'm thinking of doing it, and I don't know now in this climate. I mean, it's it's a very different climate, isn't it, mm. than than back then, um, and particularly in the last eighteen months. But I've certainly, up until that point, always said, you know what? I think it's a, the best move if you want. I think when you first start out, it's very difficult to find that work life balance. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the other thing. You can yeah. end up working 24-7 if you allow yourself. You don't want to turn any job down. Yeah. You just can end up being all about work. And I think that's fine mm-hmm. for some, you know, that's great. If there's a finite amount of time for that. Yeah. yeah. But it also works as you progress in life. It also works very well if you've got a family, if you've got children, you know, young babies and into kind of like schooling years. So, I mean, the beauty of freelance is you, you can just go to the school nativity, for example, without having to yes. take a half day's holiday. You know, you can just wait in for the gas man if you've got a problem and not have to take a day's holiday. And that's the beauty yeah. of, free, of freelancing. And you can pick and choose when you take your holidays, you know. Yes. And as many as you want. Absolutely. And and then you can work late one night and make up for stuff. And, you know, so there is that real flexibility. I love knowing that if I want to go and do something with my mom or if I want to, that nobody can say you can't do it because you've used your number of days holiday or something. Whether or not I take as many as I might have done before, some years, not so much, other years, definitely more. But it's knowing that you could means a lot as well absolutely and I mean don't get me wrong there are still many nights I pulled a 4am actually just in the last couple of weeks I was on I've took quite a bit of time off over the summer with various things Hmm. deadlines started to pile up and it was just like okay I almost need to pull an all-nighter to get this done Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah I was I remember filing the copy at four in the morning thinking I hope they don't look at the time But, you know, that happens and that's down to mm-hmm. it. You could question that's bad planning. It's personal choice. Bad planning. It's personal choice. But actually, I was thinking the weather's lovely. I want to hang out on the beach today. So I'd rather work in, late at night and have a day on the beach. I can see the logic in that. Yeah, it's that work-life <laughs> balance, isn't it? It's, it is. It's that kind of what works for you. That's right. Yeah. And you're much more in control of that, certainly, if you're if you're working for yourself. What is one thing that you've learned about yourself that you wish you'd known earlier? Is there a skill you've got that you assumed everybody had that you now realise not everybody has? Or I really don't know the answer to that. What would I say? I can't think of anything that. So for me, I did a degree that was very project based. I did loads of project work. I Loved that, always have. And then when I started the chocolate brownie business in 2005, the thing that I disliked about it was the routine of it, how much of it was the same day in, day out, and and that kind of thing. I mean, I was still running the consultancy at the same time. I didn't like that. And I can remember saying to a friend's husband, 
I can't stand this because it's it's too similar to, you know, every single day is the same. And he said, I have always known that about you. You love doing projects. And, and I do, which is why it's perfect for me to come in, solve something for somebody, set it up and move on to the next thing. I think I was about 45 before somebody told me that that was a skill I had, whereas up until then, I just thought everybody was like that. So I think it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been lucky in that I've pretty much loved my job right the way through. So there was never there was never a time when I was in hospitals working as a dietitian or when I was at the dairy council or in magazines or any time really when I thought I'm really not enjoying this. I've always really quite enjoyed what I've done. I've never left jobs because I've been unhappy. I've been in that lovely situation. I mean, it's it's rare to hear that. So many people leave jobs because they don't enjoy their work. But I've thoroughly enjoyed all of my jobs and all of my work. And even with freelance, um, I think probably one of the most challenging things I did was to write my book, Hmm. which was a hard, hard slog. I mean, that was a lot and a lot of work. But, you know, it was great when it finished. It was hard work. And I think I probably sort of got to the point where I bored my friends and family senseless with it but it gave you an amazing sense of achievement yeah but it was so there's nothing that I can really think of that I've not enjoyed or that I thought I could have done differently I suppose yep that's really good that's perfect then yeah what have you eaten recently that you've loved now, it can be something you've eaten at home. It can be somewhere else you've been and you've eaten something. It can be an ingredient. It can be a, a dish. What have you eaten recently that's just really pleased you? Blown my <laughs> mind. Yep. My friend makes this most delicious. Oh, she she's, does lots of lovely things. But one of the things that she does, which I just adore... She roasts cherry tomatoes with lemon zest, lemon juice. I think it's probably thyme that goes into there. Mm. Just roast them. It's so simple. And then she freezes Greek yogurt and then takes it out, mixes it up when it's really, really cold, the Greek yogurt, and pours all these hot kind of like vine Mm. cherry tomatoes with all the juices over the top. And it is just wow. one of the most delicious things. And it's just perfect for serving with grilled meat or grilled yeah. fish. So I think, you know, that's something which is just... That you've had a lot of joy from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she's also got a pizza oven. She's got one of these portable pizza oh. ovens, ovens. So mm. we've had many pizza nights where they make the dough and they present you with your dough and then a whole load of toppings and you can just make your own pizzas. How which go into the into the uh, pizza oven for about three minutes and that's really fresh pizza there's nothing to touch is there you know I mean you can't even delivered to you from a pizza oven it's not the same as just being there as it comes off yeah I mean I I like I like eating right I'd be a rubbish dietitian if Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy eating and I, I just like I like a lot of stuff. I mean, it really simple mm-hmm. stuff. So yesterday, for example, I've just been doing some um, packed lunch features for Instagram and I had some leftover. I did a pasta salad and it was just so simple. It was literally whole wheat pasta with some tuna, some mozzarella, cucumber, cherry tomatoes, bit of balsamic, drizzle of olive oil. And I had it, I sat outside and uh, it was boiling hot. I sat in the garden and, and just ate it for lunch, thinking I could be in the Mediterranean here. And I think <laughs> actually so much about eating is not necessarily about the food itself. It's about the experience. As the circumstances. It's yeah. the experience, isn't it? And I think, you know, mm-hmm. some of my most memorable meals, it's not even so much about the food. It's about the time and the place. So, you know, I can remember being on holiday in Tobago and we'd gone out um, on a fishing boat and caught some, um, can't even remember what the mackerel, I think no. it wouldn't have been mackerel, that's cold water, but we caught some fish. Mm. The guy said, I'll meet me at the lifeguard hut on the beach at six o'clock. And he literally cooked up this fish on a camping stove and his wife had made a potato salad and a green salad. And we sat on the pavement and, and ate this. It just Nothing tasted back. quite like it. Yeah. yeah, it's that kind of like, it's that, that emotion and like, or that, you know, we've had loads of barbecues on the beach. 
this summer yeah. and it's just watching the sun go down everyone's happy there's you've been in for a swim Relaxed. everyone's just chilled and having a great time and, and actually all you're having is a bit of grilled chicken and some avocado in a, in a bap and it's just it's the moment which is so much more important yes. and I think that's why you know with certainly with the job that I do so much of it about is about not just what you eat it's how you eat the enjoyment giving food your time treasuring it and treating it well because you know there's been such a lot of effort if you think huge amounts of effort that have gone into the production everything going on the every plate. single item that goes on yep. your plate it didn't just happen you know no. somebody has planted the seeds to grow the grain to feed that animal and that's yep. just at the beginning of the process you know so I you know, know and this is what I think we need to think about particularly I mean getting all political here but with climate change we have to I think get back in touch with going right back to the beginning of the food chain and thinking about the effort that's gone in and not just shoving yep. food into our face while we're watching tv and not paying any attention to it go back to the the whole process and the enjoyment that that food can you know give you no i think i think i think that's true and i think that is often forgotten when people are rushing and things and i think that's something that the pandemic has done for us too because we were all eating at home and having to eat and some people have had to discover how to cook because they've never done yeah. that but i think having that time, not having a commute, those kind of things have yeah. meant that more people have discovered the pleasure of that. And I think that's a great thing. And I think we have to try and hang on to that. I I was doing a lot of work overseas and in places like Tunisia where they only use seasonal ingredients. So if you're going to make roasted tomatoes, you're only going to do them at the beginning of the year when the tomatoes are there. There's no greenhouse, import them, And so if you say, could we get organic roasted tomatoes for this person? They say, yeah. So right now it's 2021. So they could have them in 2023 because we'll need to grow them next year and make them. And then they could we could supply them after that. And while that irritates a lot of people, I think it's brilliant because it's what makes them taste delicious because they're only using them when they're at their very best. And I was always saying to people, don't lose that. Don't be pushed into importing them half ripe from all around the world so that you can do it stick with that because that is your real point of difference and it's what makes it so delicious and nothing else quite like it and you know so I, I do think it you're right it is all of those circumstances yeah and I think you're right with the pandemic it's really brought to the attention when so many things have been off limits for us the one thing that we've all had is in fact food has become such a huge focus didn't it because actually when you think it goes it goes further than just people having more time in their house to cook it was also the one place where you were still allowed to go pretty much other than for medical reasons was the supermarket and I mean I don't know I'm sure I'm not alone but I used to you know the the supermarket shopping used to be an absolute chore something that you did as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible during the pandemic and lockdown I found myself arguing with my husband over the once a week trip to the supermarket. Who's going to go? Who would go? Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? You know, and it was quite exciting when we had neighbours who were like, oh, I can't go out. Could you go to the shops and get us up? You know, we've run out of yes. this. You like, I could actually leave the house with a valid reason. Yeah. Obviously following all the safety protocols, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, food became such an important part of people's lives. Such a focus. And I think... And a routine and everything. And, you know, the family dinners, sitting down together. Mm -hmm. We we started to have more structured kind of eating habits, didn't we, where people Mm -hmm. were having breakfast because they had the time. Then we'd all sit down and have a sandwich at lunchtime or whatever, leftovers from the night before for lunch because you're all together and then a dinner. And it was perfect. I mean, the the amount of um, cooking that my son did... And uh, it was just brilliant. You know, I think that was one of the great things that came out of a very dire, bad situation. Certainly talking to lots of people, children were given more opportunity to cook. And also not just the cakes, the buns, the pe- the breads, you know, they seem to be cooking more, you know, dinners. So whether it's stir fries, I know my son made and a mate. We used to get the cookery books down and we'd all pick one thing we were going to make that week. And he, he Which is up, lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he came yeah. up with some amazing choices. We, we had a paella one night that he chose to make. 
and prawn skewers another night. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of, he really embraced it. And I think that was reflective of lots of, of people. Yes. On the other hand, of course, you had a huge number of people who were suffering terribly with food insecurity and po- food poverty. I'm very aware that we we're in a quite privileged situation and that we didn't have yep. that. So it's all about very balance, so. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm an ambassador for City Harvest, the charity in London that redistributes food. Yeah. And the the numbers of people relying on them, because for so many people, even people who were working and then were furloughed, the 20% that they lost from their wages was the money they bought food with. And so there have been some people for whom it has been a massive challenge and we have to really look at that and look at what that, you know, how we make sure that doesn't happen on an ongoing basis because it seems ridiculous in a country with the wealth that we have that anybody should be in that situation where they're choosing food or heating or relying on food banks and donations and things to give them food. Yeah, or feeding. I mean, one of the things that I did earlier um, in the year, so I've been, I did some behind the scenes work for the full time meals campaign with Tom mm. Kerridge, Tom Kerridge yes. and Marcus Rashford. Rashford, yeah, of course you did. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant, really. I mean, that campaign about ending food poverty is just such an important one. Um, it's got such a strong Very. message, and I mean, you know. Tom Kerridge basically has come up with 52 recipes, one which comes out every single week with a kind of a a video of how to cook it. Marcus Rashford, obviously, with all of his campaigning against ending food poverty and child poverty, such an important thing. But, yeah, I'd work behind the scenes on the recipes, making sure that they were nutritionally adequate, obviously. Which is a challenge as well. Terrible challenge. Yeah, it is, actually, because, I mean, you've got this fine balance, actually, because with food poverty... You're trying to get this fine line, you know, so much about creating recipes and menus is about cutting calories. Actually, with food poverty, you're kind of making sure that there are enough calories, getting enough calories into children and adults is is the priority. But at the same time, you want those to be good quality calories. You don't want those calories to be just kind of, you know, loads of of fat and sugar. You want them to come with protein and vitamins and minerals but of course that comes with a price tag normally because if you're looking at fish or you're looking at chicken or you're looking at meat you're you know it's trying to find that balance how do you get that good nutrition in and how also can they afford to cook it on on restricted amounts of electricity and things so yeah and with limited cooking facilities you know some people don't even have you know they have one hob or another one hob they have a microwave they don't have utensils no, um, they have a kettle, you know, no. so it's a it, is. it was a great campaign to actually be involved with. And it's still running and doing really, really well. Doing great things. Yeah, it's doing great things. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me. That has flown by and I think it's been really good. Oh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's so lovely to catch up after all these years as well. I know we've had a few chats in between. So I very much look forward to seeing it all um, go live in a couple of weeks' time. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Let Me Introduce You, the weekly food business podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or whatever you like to pick up your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. Leave a comment to let me know what you've enjoyed. You can get us on Instagram, Facebook or on Twitter at Jane Milton Food. If you found it helpful, we'd love you to tell other food businesses about the podcast too. I look forward to seeing you next time.